Our text is Lord's Day. We're taking a brief break this week and next week from our series in Daniel. Just uh, periodically, we so we're going through a long series. I think it's just helpful to to take a break, um, and uh, and so we're uh, considering today from our text uh, is found in Mark chapter eleven. Mark chapter eleven. And verses 12 through 14. And then there is a a portion of that text that the Lord chases the money changers out of the temple. We're not focusing upon that. The rest of the text picks up uh, in verses 20 and 21. So Mark 11 12 through 14 and 20 through 21. There we read, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Then verses 20 through 21. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. How does hypocrisy manifest itself in your life and in mine? Well, let me give you some ways that I see in my own life and perhaps you see in your life as well. We can go through the mere motions of prayer, singing the Psalms, hearing the word of God read and preached unto us, and our hearts yet be lukewarm, maybe even cold and indifferent toward the Lord. We can outwardly profess with our mouths our love for the brethren, but in our hearts we despise and disregard them. We can be a model of moral purity before others publicly, but secretly feed on pornography and every lustful thought. We can receive the forgiveness of sin as a free gift through Jesus Christ and yet refuse to forgive others who have sinned against us. We can commend the preaching of God's word but then neglect to live it out in our lives. Dear ones, when hypocrisy takes root in our hearts, it brings along with it a kind of delusion and a blindness to our lives so that 
one may think all is well when really all is not well. Hypocrisy, dear ones, deadens. It deadens the pangs of the conscience and sends one whistling all the way to hell. The Lord Jesus displays in the text before us today the sin of hypocrisy that had engulfed not merely an individual, but rather had engulfed the visible church of the Jews at that time. Dear ones, the same delusion of hypocrisy will likewise encompass us, consume us if we do not carefully heed the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that are found in the text before us today. The main points from our text are these. First of all, the hypocrisy of Israel. Secondly, the fruitlessness of Israel. And thirdly, the curse upon Israel. First of all, then, the hypocrisy of Israel in verses 12 through 13a. Mark 11, verses 12 through 13a. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. Our text here begins on Monday morning, the very week that would end in Christ's crucifixion and burial. And Mark eleven twelve states here that the day after Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Lord left Bethany, which was approximately two miles from Jerusalem, a short, relatively short walk from Jerusalem. Uh, he left Bethany where he was staying and traveled, walked with his disciples to Jerusalem. And as the Lord and his disciples walked that short distance, the text says that Jesus became hungry. He became hungry. And I don't want to very quickly pass over the fact that Jesus became hungry. This is a very important truth. And it's very easy that we might pass over that. But the significance of the fact that Jesus became hungry is that it reveals that he who was the eternal son of God assumed to himself human nature. All of the physical frailties and weaknesses of human nature, Jesus assumed to himself yet without sin. Think about it for a moment. Think about this. As a man, the almighty son of God, who has no need of anything, becomes weary and hungry. As a man, the holy son of God, who cannot sin, was tempted by the devil. As a man, the all-powerful son of God, suffered 
as no man has ever suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the, the court and the trials that he passed through before Pilate and before the chief priests, and as he hung upon the cross, why did he become a man? Why did he assume human nature? Why did he suffer? In order that he might manifest his infinite love and grace in making lawless rebels like me his own friend, making you a friend upon whom he would show mercy and draw unto himself and forgive forever your sins and receive you into union with him and his glorious inheritance. I submit to you, dear ones, that it is as important to affirm and to defend the humanity of Jesus Christ as it is to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. For dear ones, if Jesus was not truly man, he could not have suffered as our mediator in bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. It is because he came as the second Adam and fulfilled all righteousness as the second Adam and suffered the infinite wrath of God as the second Adam that we are delivered once and for all from the condemnation of God. Let us never forget, dear ones, that our great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ, he is fully God and still is fully man. He is, not simply was when he was upon the earth, he is one of us. He is one of us. He therefore knows there in heaven, he knows from his own experience, he knows from the temptations, from the pains, from the sorrows that he experienced, he knows what we are going through in this world. Dear ones, let us never accuse the Lord of being so infinitely above us and beyond us that he cannot sympathize with us and what we are going through. Yes, God is infinitely transcendent and above us. And yet Jesus Christ has come near to us when he assumed humanity. In fact, he has become one of us in order to redeem us from destruction and to bestow upon us the riches of heaven forevermore. I submit to you, dear ones, here is one to whom we can flee in our deepest pain 
and sorrow and in whom we will always find comfort and peace and hope. The only one who can give us hope. When everything else seems to be going wrong, only Jesus can give us hope. When we suffer what losses we suffer, this loss of loved ones in this life, Jesus is the one who gives us hope at all times. As Jesus and his disciples, continuing with our text, as they walked to Jerusalem, Jesus saw a fig tree along the road that was full of leaves at that time in the spring because the Passover is to be celebrated later on that same week in which Jesus is making this short little journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. This is in the springtime. And there were leaves upon the fig tree. And he approached it, desiring to find some fruit upon it in order to satisfy his hunger. Just a couple observations about fig trees. Fig trees were one of the most prominent trees for nourishment and refreshment in the land of Palestine. The fig tree was a great delight to the taste and uh, the large leaves that covered the fig tree were also used to shade uh, a person, young children, to put them under the shade of the fig tree uh, during uh, a time of the uh, hot scorching sun, the wind blowing. After the leaves of the fig tree had fallen off at the onset of winter, there would appear in the spring leaves with what were called the early figs upon the trees in the springtime at this time of the year in which Jesus is making this short journey. Although the early figs in the spring were not yet fully ripened, uh, in other words, they weren't the tastiest, uh, uh, yet they were used, they were eaten. Uh, they, they were drawn from the tree and, and one could eat uh, even though it was not fully ripened at that point. It wouldn't be f more fully ripened until the summertime. But they would find these figs and they would eat them. And this appears to be what uh, Jesus was looking for. He wasn't looking for uh, ripened figs uh, in the springtime when he knew they wouldn't be ripened until the summertime, but he was looking for figs upon the tree at that time. Thus, for the Lord to see leaves on the fig tree at this time of the year would lead him to believe that there would also be some fruit upon the fig tree, even if it was not fully ripened yet, in order to satisfy his hunger. A second observation about fig trees is that the fig tree in the scripture was used to signify and to represent uh, the nation of Israel. 
For example, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, Hosea says, speaking on behalf of the Lord God, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. So here we see in a prophecy that Israel is likened unto a fig tree, the first ripe in the fig tree. Jesus uses a parable in Luke 13, and let me read that portion to you. Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, I think it's particularly relevant to what we're reading from Mark chapter 2 right now. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. The parable here that Jesus gave is again speaking of Israel as a nation. Uh, that during the ministry, the three-year ministry of the Lord Jesus, he had gone to Israel, he had preached, he had proclaimed, he had performed miracles. And though there were many who followed him outwardly because they were following his miracles, he knew their hearts uh, were not, uh, by way of the nation, had not turned to him. Uh, you remember that John 1.11 says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so here we, I think, see in this parable, Jesus is basically saying, um, uh, Israel is like a, a fig tree uh, that doesn't have any fruit on it. Israel, uh, even through my ministry, continues to reject me uh, in their hearts. They want the miracles. They want to see great signs. They want to see these wonders. But they do not want to receive me as Savior and Lord. And the Lord Jesus uses this parable in Luke 13 to indicate what is going on in Israel as a nation and that they will be cut down. And that was fulfilled, as we'll see in just a moment, in, in one of our main points in the, from the text. They would be cut down. So Israel is, is signified in Scripture by a grapevine, uh, which we saw in Hosea 9.10. Uh, and also, you can look and find that to be the case in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Israel is signified, uh, again, as a nation by the olive tree 
In Romans 11, that great illustration of the, of the olive tree where the branches, the natural branches, are, are uh, broken off because they rejected uh, the Lord Jesus and unnatural branches are grafted in. We who are Gentiles are grafted into uh, that olive tree. Um, and then uh, Israel is signified and represented by the fig tree as well. I want you to understand uh, <clears throat> the reaction of Jesus here in not finding fruit upon this fig tree uh, was not that Jesus, uh, uh, he was not angry here with a fig tree, okay? He's not just pouring out, he's not saying, oh, well, that fig tree doesn't have any fruit. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, in my anger, just curse that fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. Uh, we need to look beyond uh, what is going on here. Uh, this is a parabolic action on the part of Jesus. He's saying far more than simply he's cursing a single fig tree. He's, rep he's speaking about, again, the nation of Israel and their rejection of him. The leaves upon the fig tree and it abounded, this fig tree abounded in leaves. Jesus doesn't say there were no leaves. He saw the leaves. It's just there, no, there was no fruit. The leaves upon the fig tree speak of, again, the outward displays of religion that were practiced by Israel. Israel at that time had the temple, had the sacrifices, had the priesthood, had the Old Testament scriptures, they had the holy days. They had the covenants Abraham made to Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel at that time, they gloried, they boasted in these grand leaves that were upon their fig tree as outward displays of their privileged status among the nations that God had given to us all of these things. They boasted in these external ceremonies, but they neglected what was most important. They neglected faith in the one true living God and in his son, Jesus Christ, who was the one who had given them these ordinances these outward ceremonies. He was the one who had given those to them in order to show to them and to remind them of his covenant love for them, that he was with them. He was near them. He was caring for them. He would save them through Jesus Christ. It would be like, if I were to use somewhat of an analogy, it would be like Israel's Israel was like this, that think of a husband who must be away from his wife for some time and who gives unto his wife a very special ring to wear so as to remind her of his love for her, to draw her even in his absence from her near to him in affection and to think of him often while he's away but yet 
Instead of that happening, she falls in love with the ring. She doesn't even remember who it was who gave her the ring. All that she cares about is the ring. Well, that's what Israel had done. And that's what we do. When we have the ordinances that God gives to us today, the preaching of his word, the reading of his word, the singing of psalms, the sacraments, and when we, we receive them and they do not carry us and point us to Jesus Christ, we're like that woman who's only caught up with the ring and doesn't remember that all of those ceremonies are to direct their hearts and faith and love and repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ. I ask you, dear ones, is there anything more dangerous than hypocrisy? Wherein we go through the mere outward motions of religion. We show up to worship God. We're present, but our hearts are far from the Lord. We don't truly trust in him. We don't truly love him. We all as Christians, and I want you to realize this, we all, myself included, we all as Christians have hypocrisy in our lives to varying degrees, even as Christians, wherein we profess one thing, but we do not fully live out what we profess with our mouths. In other words, we're all inconsistent. There are contradictions in all of our lives. We're not perfect. We are all sinful. And so we, none of us lives up to our profession sinlessly and perfectly. Those are hypocrisies wherein we practice or we, we profess one thing and we do not live it out in our lives, practice it. But I submit to you the difference between a Christian and a hypocrite is this, true Christians see those hypocrisies in their lives and they hate them. They hate the inconsistencies and the contradictions that they see. They repent of them. They turn from them. They cry out to God for mercy for God's forgiveness and they renew their obedience and love for Christ to walk in faithfulness to him looking always to Jesus Christ as their only righteousness whereas the hypocrite on the other hand sees the hypocrisies the hypocrite doesn't care the hypocrite is indifferent to those inconsistencies between his or her profession and the living it out in faith and life and love. The hypocrite doesn't repent or seek God's forgiveness. For the hypocrite, it's merely a game. It's simply a game in order to fool others all around him or her. That's the hypocrite. 
God's judgment doesn't rest upon the Christian who has hypocrisies. God's judgment rests upon the hypocrite. Hell awaits not the Christian who has hypocrisies and hates his hypocrisies and wants to be rid of his hypocrisies, but hell awaits the hypocrite who doesn't care, who doesn't repent, who doesn't seek God's forgiveness. Dear ones, if we would see the sin of hypocrisy crucified in our lives, let us give heed to these following means of grace. First, let us embrace Jesus Christ as our only hope of eternal salvation, as our only hope of peace and joy and contentment in this life. Only he, dear ones, can purge and cleanse our minds and our hearts from all hypocritical dead works to serve the living God. Dear, dear ones, Jesus died. He suffered on the cross to set us free from the guilt and from the corruption of all those hypocrisies in our life. Next, means of grace, let us not be strangers to Jesus Christ, but rather let us desire, let us seek communion with him throughout the day. Let us seek communion with him through fervent prayer, through the study of his word. You know, these hypocrisies aren't going to just flee. They flee. They are removed in our lives as we spend time with Jesus Christ in prayer. But if we don't want to spend time with Jesus Christ in prayer, we should not expect that these inconsistencies and these contradictions in our life are going to vanish. They are removed through spending time with Christ and spending time in his word and calling upon him and his death, through his death and his resurrection to mortify, to crucify these contradictions in our life. Likewise, under the same means of grace, not being strangers to Christ, Worship, dear ones, without God's Spirit will become a mere ritual. Worship without due preparation will become a mere outward form that we go through. We can't just show up. We must prepare our hearts even before we come to worship Him. If we would worship Him aright, if it wouldn't simply be vain repetition or simply trying to make an impression upon others that we're here. If it would be true worship, we must prepare our hearts. Next, means of grace. Let us grow in hating our hypocrisy. Hating it as an enemy 
of our soul that is seeking to destroy us. If there was some physical enemy out there seeking to destroy you, you would take some type of action against such an enemy, whether to flee, whether to stand and fight. You would do something. Hypocrisy is seeking to destroy you. What are you doing about it in your life? Let us hate it, dear ones, not only for what it will do to us. In other words, not only hate hypocrisy for the consequences of that hypocrisy and what it will do to us, but hate hypocrisy for the very nature of that sin, which is that it's a, it shows a lack of sincere faith in and love for Jesus Christ. Next, means of grace. Let us not justify so-called little sins in our lives because that very often is where hypocrisy begins, justifying little sins. And we begin, then we begin to practice more and more two different lives. When we're around one group of people, we act that way. But when we're by ourselves, we act completely differently. When we're at work and amongst those who are, who are heathens, who are non-Christians, who are profane, uh, we, we join in with them. But when we're with others, uh, we act completely different. You see, it begins with justifying little sins in our lives. And then we begin to justify big sins. Then we don't care about sin at all. It, it's, it, it's again a process. <clears throat> doesn't happen overnight, but it is a process that begins to work in all of our lives. A little hypocrisy, dear ones, tolerated in our lives will inevitably lead us to a lot of hypocrisy. Let us realize, dear ones, that hypocrisy will enslave us. It will enslave us. It will capture us. And we will become slaves to two different lives. The one we practice, as I said before, certain people, and the one that we actually are, the person that we actually are when we're with a different group of people or when we're all by ourselves. But the truth of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, dear ones, and his truth is that which liberates us and helps us to be the same person, regardless of who we are around. The same person that sets us free from those hypocrisies so that we hate those hypocrisies. We repent of them and we seek God's forgiveness for them. The second main point is the fruitlessness of Israel. In Mark 11, 13b, where we read, And when he came to it, that is to the fig tree, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. When Jesus came near to the fig tree, we read here that he found these 
large leaves. We found, he found that the, the tree is full of leaves, but there was no fruit. And the explanatory note here emphasizes that it was not yet the time for figs. That is, it was not yet the time for fully ripened figs, even though unripened figs might be seen during that time of the year in the spring. The Lord did not expect to find on the fig tree fully ripened figs upon a tree early in the spring, but he did expect to find some early figs, unripened figs, that he could still eat, especially when the fig tree showed forth such great leaves that, it, that adorned it, but he found no fruit at all on the tree. Let me say with regard to fruitfulness, or in this case fruitlessness, the desire, the desire of the true Christian is to be fruitful. Is to be fruitful. To bear fruit for Jesus Christ. Whether 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold, Christians all bear fruit to different ratios. Not all bear exactly the same kind of fruit, but every Christian bears fruit for Jesus Christ. However, Darren's, when we prefer fruitlessness over fruitfulness, there is something tragically wrong. A tree that does not want to bear fruit is a tree that is diseased, a branch that is dead. And when we don't care about the fact that we are fruitless, there is something very, very wrong. That, dear ones, is the complacency and the apathy of unbelief, not faith. What fruit ought to be evident within the church, within the ministry, and within your Christian lives. Let me suggest these. Many more could be added, but let me suggest these. <clears throat> this fruit. First, a sincere and growing faith in Christ alone, rather than faith in our works, our abilities, or faith in men to rescue us, to save us in any way. Understand, it is not the size of your faith that saves you. Even mustard seed size faith, Jesus says, can move a mountain. It is not the size of your faith that saves you. It is in whom your faith is placed that saves you. If your faith, even a small amount of faith, is placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, He 
will save you. He will save you. He is faithful. Don't look at how large or how small your faith is. Look to him alone to rescue you and save you, who has promised he will. Another fruit that ought to be evident within the church, the ministry, within your own Christian life is a humility. A humility that bows before God rather than exalting oneself before God or before others. A humility that desires to be taught, who doesn't think that he or she knows it all already, but is willing to be taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his word. That's a humility that should be evident in the life of every Christian. And it's a humility that views service to God, service to others, not to be a sign of punishment, but rather to be a badge of honor that we can serve the Lord God, that we can serve one another. Another fruit is the fruit of repentance. A repentance that evidences itself in godly sorrow for sin. And more for it being an offense against God than for the consequences that sin brings. You see, if we only sorrow over our sin because look at what my sin has gotten, the trouble my sin has gotten me into, then we're not truly repenting because repentance grieves and sorrows how it has offended Almighty God, first and foremost. Yes, we can, we can sorrow and grieve over the consequences of sin for sure, but we ought to first and foremost be grieving over how we've offended our, our great and mighty God who loves us, who is a holy God, who is a gracious and merciful God. It's a repentance that desires to know one's hypocrisies rather than hiding them. It's a repentance that desires those hypocrisies to be mortified and forsaken. It's a, it's a repentance that prays the prayer of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Another fruit to be evident within the church, the ministry, your Christian life, is a love. A love for the Lord and for our neighbor, for one another. A love that is sacrificial. A love that look, overlooks even the weaknesses and the frailties and the sins of one another. A love that gives even when it hurts. That's the sacrificial love. A love that issues not simply by way of words, 
but issues from the heart. And then, because it issues from the heart, it affects our speech, it affects our conduct, our desire to be obedient to God. It's a love that is forgiving even when we are treated with contempt, even when we are lied about. It's a love that is yet forgiving. And the last fruit that I'm mentioning, many more, but the last one I would mention is a zeal. A zeal for the Lord and for his truth, like that of Jesus. We've skipped over in Mark chapter 11, <clears throat> verses four, verses uh, 15 through 19. That describes the zeal of the Lord when he went into the temple and chased the money changers out of the temple. There we see, again, the zeal of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they had profaned his holy house, and he chases them out. They were making merchandise of that which was holy, where they were treating with contempt that which the Lord had given for the worship. They had chased the Gentiles out of that part of the temple that was supposed to be given to the Gentiles coming into the outer court to pray and to call upon God. They had chased the Gentiles out and set up all of the ways that they could to make money. Jesus said this, you've made my house a den of thieves rather than a house for prayer for all the nations, for the Gentiles. Yes, the Lord Jesus was filled with zeal, a holy zeal and jealousy for his Father and for the truth. And so that will be manifested in our lives as well as fruit. Dear ones, we must remember that we cannot produce fruit for the Lord in our own strength. Without him, Jesus says in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. In Philippians 4, 13, however, we can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us. We are all lacking in being able to deal with the hypocrisies in our life. We are all lacking in being able to bear fruit that endures for Jesus Christ, but we can do all things through Christ. He is there to help us. He is there to strengthen us as we fall upon him daily for his mercy and his grace. It is he then who receives the glory, not us, when there is fruit in our lives. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. God receives the glory. The last point from our text is the curse upon Israel. 
in verse 14 and verses 20 through 21. And Jesus answered and said unto it, that is unto the fig tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And then there's the cleansing of the temple in the next several verses. The following day, they return and pass by the fig tree once again in verses 20 and 21. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Here we are to understand the curse that befell Israel for its hypocrisy. God gave Israel over to blindness and he sent the Roman troops against it in 70 AD within that generation to wither it, that tree nationally and ecclesiastically. The cursing of the fig tree reminds us, dear ones, of the curse that the Lord says falls upon the hypocrite. In Job 27, 8, For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? What does he gain, the hypocrite? Playing the games that he has played, or she has played. In the end, God takes away the hypocrite's soul. Likewise, you'll recall in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord Jesus, throughout that chapter, pronounces eight woes or curses upon hypocrites. And let me read for you one of those in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, that is, whited, painted tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That's what hypocrisy does. It seeks to paint the outside, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. There's no life inside. No spiritual life. Dear ones, let us not forget, however, the mercy of the Lord. We've talked about the judgment of God upon hypocrites, but let us not forget, as we draw to a close this sermon, let us not forget the mercy of the Lord that's demonstrated here. He cursed Israel, yes. Israel was judged, yes. But those branches, Jesus says, through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, will be grafted back into that tree. The Lord will show yet mercy to his people, Israel, that he has chosen. Though Israel as a nation was cursed for her rejection of Jesus Christ, Christ was not finished with Israel. For the Lord will yet, in his mercy, graft her back 
as a nation. Along with all the other nations of this world, Israel will become a Christian nation. The United States will become a Christian nation. North Korea will become a Christian nation. China will become a Christian nation. Iran will become a Christian nation and all the other nations will become Christian nations at that time. And so, dear ones, there is hope for us. There's hope for us who have hypocrisies. There's hope for us in spite of all of our inconsistencies and the contradictions in our life if we turn to Jesus Christ. If we turn to Jesus Christ who alone is able to forgive those hypocrisies. Who alone is able to deliver us day from day from those hypocrisies. But are you willing today? Are you willing to turn to Jesus Christ in your own heart right now to turn to him and cry out to him, Lord, deliver me from all of those inconsistencies and those hypocrisies in my life. Help me to be that which I profess to be, to be that in my heart and in my, my conduct regardless of whom I'm around. Dear ones, understand that the fruit of hypocrisy will not only affect you, the fruit of hypocrisy will affect your children. It will affect the generation to come. As our children, as our children come to us to look upon our fig tree, to look upon us. And they see those leaves. Will they find fruit? Or will they simply see the leaves of profession? Or will they find the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is growing in our lives? Will they simply hear speech that's filled with religious words? Or will they find the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance or self-control. What will they find? Will they find, as they look for fruit, will they find the fruit of faith and repentance, love, obedience, and zeal for the Lord? Or will they simply see the leaves? What we do by way of bearing fruit for Jesus Christ not only affects us, it affects generations yet to come. God help us as his people. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank thee for thy holy word. We thank thee that thy spirit 
through our great teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, challenges us and does not leave us comfortable in our sins and in our inconsistencies and our hypocrisies, but convicts us and shows us. Lord, thank thee that, our, that thou dost work in our lives so that we, our God, do not become hypocrites and, and become complacent and apathetic and don't care about these inconsistencies, but that thy grace works efficaciously and that, Lord, we desire to repent of these hypocrisies in our lives. We pray, God, that thou would be glorified, that thou would give to us hope. Lord, uh, these hypocrisies are a struggle for us. We confess it. But Lord, there is hope in thee. We will not, by thy grace, be overwhelmed and overcome by these inconsistencies, but we will continue to persevere in hoping in and trusting in Jesus Christ as our only hope, as the one alone who can deliver us and who has and will continue to grant us his grace as we look to him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.